Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. While we're continuing our series this week, Jesus Goes Global, the Missionary Enterprise, with a message titled, God's Love for Jews and Gentiles. So turn to Acts chapter 13, 44 to 52, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. It's been a number of years ago now, but the memory of what occurred has stayed with me. You know, I had just finished preaching my final sermon. In those days, I I preached five times every weekend, but I had finished. And after I had spent a great deal of time in prayer with others and ministering to people with needs and following that, I was just ready to go home. I was tired. My wife was with me. But on that given Sunday, I was so unhappy. I thought my sermon was a flop, and I wondered if anybody would be back next Sunday. And I told my wife that, and well, she remained quiet, and I wondered if she secretly agreed not been a good sermon. So what went wrong? Well, I was working my way through the book of Romans, and on that Sunday, I was preaching from Romans 11. And if you don't know the text, it's an extended argument about Israel's rejection of the gospel and how Israel's rejection of the gospel has opened the door for the Gentiles to come in. Well, the passage goes on to say that a partial hardness has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And And the passage uses a metaphor. Israel says the passage are the natural branches of the olive tree, branches that have been broken off. And the Gentiles are like wild branches, branches that don't belong there by nature. But they've been grafted into the olive tree. And hence I said, it really is amazing, not that Israel belongs to the gospel of Jesus, but that the Gentiles are made a part of the gospel. Well, that's the basics of the message I preach. But a part of any preaching event, as you know, is to help people understand how a given Bible passage relates to them and why they should consider what's being said and what they should do. That is, should they change their behavior or should they believe something or should they hear a call to action? Something like that. And yet I struggled as to how to make this lengthy passage relate to the real lives of people. And I drove home that day and I told Kathy I'd be greatly surprised if next Sunday even one person bothered to show up. And then something wonderful happened. See, that very week, I got a word from a Jewish young man who had given his life to Christ that day during my sermon and after hearing my message. He told me later that he'd been keenly interested in Jesus, but also thought that whatever Christianity was all about, it was not for him. After all, he said, I'm a Jew and Jews are not Christians. And yet that day, he told me that he had learned that it was the Jew who was the natural branch. And it was the Jew that should have been the fruitful vine. And something horrible had happened to break that vine from the tree. But that God could restore the natural branches. Well, he told me he wanted to be restored to the place that God had made him for. Now, I relate that incident because it was an incredible encounter with a Jewish man who had come to see Jesus as the fulfillment of the hope of Israel. But I also tell that story because it reminds me that what this young man thought, that Jews don't belong to the family of Jesus, well, that's unfortunately still a misconception of many in Israel. Now today, we're going to see how this breach, and here I mean the breach between Israel and Jesus, widened to the place where there could be, you know, no foreseeable repair of course, in many ways. We might say that breach started during the ministry of Jesus. You know, the Pharisees were fierce in their opposition, and of course, they were not alone. The highly political Sadducees saw nothing but 
problems with the Jesus phenomenon. And of course, when it came to the crucifixion, it was this unholy alliance between the Pharisees and the Sadducees that led them to demand from Pilate that Jesus would be crucified. And when the church began, again, the same unholy alliance comes into play. Stop, they demanded, all preaching in the name of Jesus. And then, of course, came the martyrdom of Stephen. And with that, many believers were driven out of Jerusalem. And as we studied Acts 13, at the beginning of Paul and Barnabas' missionary journey, a journey that first took them to the island of Cyprus, and it seems that the synagogue there was quite receptive. But we've also seen that the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch had allowed Paul considerable opportunity to preach there. And furthermore, it would seem that a great many did believe and that the congregation begged Paul that he might stay and preach again the following Sabbath. And so even though Jerusalem itself had become a hotbed of anti-Jesus hatred, there seems to have been an opening in the synagogues in what might be called the dispersion. But on the following Sabbath, things turned. Let's read again from Acts 13, to 45. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. So we have to make an assumption here. Even though Luke doesn't tell us what happened from the first Sabbath to the second, we've got to assume that Paul and Barnabas were occupied. Now, there's a manuscript of this text, a manuscript called the Codex Beze, that actually adds an introduction to this text. It says, so it happened that the word of God spread throughout the whole city. Now, a word on manuscripts like that, that add a sentence, what seems likely to me is that at some point in time in teaching the book of Acts that some copyist added an explanation, and that added explanation in some fashion found its way right into one of the texts. And so it's clear that the original, that is, the text that Luke actually wrote, while it doesn't include the sentence about what happened that week, but the explanation does help us to understand that Paul and Barnabas were busy all week. I mean, perhaps one person in the synagogue had a group of friends over, and one thing led to another, and eventually they were ministering to huge crowds. Eventually, the word of the events of Jesus and his crucifixion, his resurrection, and that he was the long-awaited Messiah, I mean, those words spread like wildfire throughout the city in one week. Now, when Luke says that on the following Sabbath, the whole city showed up, we have to expect a very large crowd made up of a great many Gentiles. And since most synagogues can't hold a large crowd, well, we might wonder how it is that Paul managed to speak to such a great company of people. But I've got a memory of speaking in a village in Romania, and the size of the crowd grew, and eventually the church was filled to overflowing, and then the the doors of the church were left open, and speakers were set up outside so that people in the streets could hear. Now, it might have been that Paul began in the synagogue, he moved outside, or perhaps, you know, he might have moved to the amphitheater as the crowd just kept getting larger, but in any case... The crowd surpassed all expectations, and it was now apparent that that Paul was speaking to the better part of the city. And Luke tells us that the Jews were filled with jealousy. And here we all need an explanation of what Luke means when he uses the word the Jews. And here, since back in verse 43, we've already been told that many Jews and Greek converts to Judaism were following Paul and that they now believed in Jesus. So on that basis, we have to assume that Luke doesn't mean that 
all of the Jews were filled with jealousy. He means rather the leadership of the synagogue. See, I think what Luke wants to tell us is that the Jewish leaders of the synagogue were filled with jealousy. The religious leaders of the synagogue had some success in reaching out to Gentiles, but that success had been limited. So suddenly Paul comes along and he preaches Jesus and the success is immediate and it overshadows everything else that they've done. The Gentiles want in on this great story and the synagogue leadership is on their heels. See, Luke says they respond by contradicting what Paul is saying. And here I'm assuming they're they're telling the crowd that Jesus was a convicted criminal and that there's a reason for his crucifixion. Luke also says they reviled Paul and perhaps they're describing Paul as a disgraced rabbi. See, he was a rising star in Judaism to be sure, but somehow he went off the rails. And now he was a rabbi no one was listening to. And after all, what was he doing here? I mean, why wasn't he in Jerusalem? Surely he had been discredited at home. And now he was attempting to revive his career by going to places that hadn't heard about his misconduct. You know, Jesus once told a parable, the parable of the wheat and the tares. An enemy of the farmer went out and planted weeds among the wheat so that the harvest would be disrupted. And that's who these synagogue rulers are. They're the sons of the evil one or the sons of Satan who do the bidding of Satan so that there would be fewer people in the kingdom, so that people wouldn't be open to hearing the word of God. You know, Satan continues to have his sons in the world today, men and women who do everything in their power so that people won't listen. It's important that all God's people understand that. There are spiritual forces at work that seek to discredit the gospel and also seek to discredit people who preach it. Look, I'm not talking about those preachers who are, you know, guilty of sexual misconduct or something like that. I'm talking about belittling God's ministers and trading in unfounded rumors. So please remember that Jesus was slandered and his servants will be slandered as well. And failure to recognize this spiritual battle is failure to recognize the battle. And in the case of what happened in Pisidian Antioch, It meant that a great many Jewish people attending the synagogue were simply deceived by their leaders and would eventually lead to what my Jewish friend, the one who attended the service where I was preaching, simply assumed. He assumed, look, I'm a Jew and Jews can't be followers of Jesus. That's Satan's plan for the Jewish people. We're coming to the deadline for your opportunity to register for the Back to the Bible Canada 2022 Israel Experience. The time is drawing close and we're nearing capacity. So if you're thinking of joining us for the Holy Land Adventure from April 24th to May 2nd, 2022 with Bible teacher Dr. John Newfeld, Laugh-A-Gains Phil Calloway, musical guest Laura Hastings, and the Back to the Bible Canada ministry team, now's the time. Tour the Holy Land, walk where Jesus, Paul, David walked, sail the Sea of Galilee, visit the Jordan River, the Garden of Gethsemane, and join together for a communion service at the Garden Tomb. The full Israel Experience itinerary is available online, and to ensure an intimate experience, event numbers are limited, so register soon. For more information, call 1-800-663-2425 or visit our events page at Back to the Bible.
has been describing a standoff. The synagogue leaders against the missionary team, and this can't be made to be a battle between Jews and Christians. Remember, Paul and Barnabas are Jews. The synagogue leaders are Jews. Rather, this is a battle for truth and a battle to suppress the truth. The synagogue leaders have chosen their weapons, and their weapons are slander. Now it's a time for the missionary team to respond, and I'm reading Acts 13, 46 and 47. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. And so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So let's start with that first statement. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, they say. It was necessary that we should start our proclamation of Jesus in the synagogue. Well, why is that? Was it necessary from you know a strategic standpoint? Or is Paul speaking about something else? Well, he's speaking about something else. Years later, Paul would write these very words, and here I'm reading Romans 9, 4 to 5. He says, they are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. That's not a small list. It's a list that modern-day Christians should remember. See, there's a reason why faithful Christians must have an attitude of respect or gratefulness and of love for all the physical descendants of Abraham. Look, we must remember that the gospel of our salvation came from Israel. The covenants, the law, the temple worship, the patriarchs, and the hope of the Messiah, all those things came to us from Israel. And because of this, Paul is determined that the very first people to hear the gospel of Jesus must always be the Jew. And so he says in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then he adds, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. See, the gospel presents us with salvation for all, but it's necessary that it must be proclaimed to the Jew first. Since it came from the Jew, it must first of all go to the Jew. But if the local synagogue would prove to be hostile and unwilling to bend the knee to Jesus, it's still a basic truth that they would hear it first. But what if a pattern developed? What if everywhere Paul went, the synagogue leadership would prove to be his primary foe? What then? Would Paul finally shake the dust off his feet and be done with the program of presenting the gospel to the Jew first? And the answer is no, he would not. Indeed, listen to how Paul understands the synagogue rejection to the gospel. And here, I'm reading Romans 11, 1 to 5. He writes, I ask then, has God rejected his people? By no means. For I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They've demolished your altars. I alone am left, and they seek my life. And what was God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Yeah, look, it might be that it appears as if the vast majority of Israel rejects the gospel. But, says Paul, has not that always been the case? And has it not also been the case that God has preserved a remnant of the saved in Israel? No, says Paul, I'm convinced, 
Some in Israel will always respond positively, even though the majority do not. But that doesn't take away the love and obligation that he feels towards Israel. One more quote before we move on. Listen to Paul's words in Romans 15, 27. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they are also to be of service to them in material blessings. That is, if the gospel came to the Gentiles from Israel, then the Gentiles have an obligation to Israel. Now, let me try to put my thoughts together regarding all of this. Acts chapter 13 is not simply the chapter of a widening rift between the Jewish religious leadership and the gospel of Jesus and an explanation why it is that in our day, we think of Christianity as primarily a Gentile phenomenon. Yeah, of course, the vast majority of the Christian faith is made up of Gentiles. And yeah, of course, the vast majority of Israel has rejected the gospel. And again, yes, a great many Jews today think the gospel is just not for them. And it's tragic. And the explanation of this has deep historical roots going back to the very beginnings of the church. But all of that can't take away Paul's injunction. All Gentile believers owe to Israel a great debt of gratitude. So let's start there. You know, the history of Gentiles, so-called Christians persecuting Jews, that's abhorrent. Let's commit ourselves to this, that we will not tolerate any anti-Semitism among believers. Rather, we will promote the opposite, we will promote an undying love toward Israel. And also, out of love, we won't stop praying for the eventual salvation of all Israel. Now back to our text. Paul and Barnabas make the point that they have had to take the gospel to the Jew first. Then they say to the synagogue leaders, but you have thrust the gospel aside and you have made yourselves unworthy of eternal life. And because of this, we're now turning to the Gentiles in your city. And with that, they quote Isaiah 46, verse 9. I've made you a light to the Gentiles. That verse is directed to Israel. Paul and Barnabas are Jews. And even if the vast majority of the Jews would not be a light of Jesus to the Gentiles, even still, these two Jewish men, Paul and Barnabas, would fulfill this prophecy. So let's continue to read our text, Acts 13, 48 to 52. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spread throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust of their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now, would you please notice, not all the Gentiles believed. Just like among the Jews, so also there were Gentiles who thrust the gospel aside and judged themselves unworthy of eternal life. And that's still happening today. But how do we know that there were some Gentiles who didn't believe? Well, look carefully at the latter half of verse 48. There it says, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Well, that's Luke's way of saying that God elects his own. He's telling us that even though Paul and Barnabas didn't win everyone to faith in Christ, they weren't a failure. God always elects his own based upon God's sovereign will and his eternal designs. Paul and Barnabas, that is, their fearless preaching in Pisidian Antioch, was the divinely chosen means whereby God would bring in his elect. And that's still true today. 
wherever we preach the gospel, God always brings in his own. All that believers must do is be faithful, declare Christ as the hope of the world, and watch as all those who are appointed to eternal life believe. Now then, Luke adds another matter. The word of the Lord, he says, spread throughout the entire region. Neighboring cities and towns became aware of you know, a remarkable beginning in Pisidian Antioch. Followers of Jesus the Messiah were found in that town. News of the resurrection from the dead was being spread. Interest was gaining ground, and it would set the stage for the gospel to be proclaimed in other towns as well. But all of that came with persecution. The Jewish religious leaders incited some of the leading citizens in Pisidian Antioch so that Paul and Barnabas were driven out of that region. And what was to be done about that? Well, the thing to be done is the very thing that Jesus taught his disciples in the first place. If they will not receive you in a city, don't whimper and cry and talk about how unfair all of that was. Rather, shake off the dust of your feet as a sign of your rejection of them. And then off you go to your next mission assignment. And that's what they did. And Luke simply adds, they were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. And when you think about it, that's a great lesson for all of us, isn't it? Instead of mourning what might have been, just go on, accept your next assignment from God, be encouraged, God is in control, and know that all who are appointed to eternal life will come to believe, both from the Jews and from the Gentiles, for God has determined that this is how it should be. Thanks, John. Uh, Let me ask you, and I think it's a bit of a tough question, actually. How can we make sense of this historic rift between Christians and Jews? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the rift was bound to happen. I mean, Paul makes that point in Romans where he says that, you know, that the natural branches were broken off in order to make room for, um, you know, the Gentiles to come in. And so, you know, theologically, it had to happen. But if you look at it on a historical level, I think that the, the rift really developed between the issue of whether or not the Gentiles were, you know, keeping the Jewish distinctives. And when Christianity began to, you know, uh, divorce itself from Jewish distinctives, I mean, at that point in time, a rift was deeply, deeply embedded. And I, I don't think there was any way to save that. And of course, there was always the issue of Jesus and what he meant. Thanks again, John, and remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, Jesus Goes Global, the missionary enterprise right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Since 1957, Back to the Bible Canada has provided excellent and trustworthy Bible teaching for Canadians. What has been accomplished is a result of people like you listening right now who share our hearts for this mission, in particular those who have chosen to join us in ministry as monthly partners. As we begin a new year, perhaps becoming an 1119 monthly partner might be something you'd consider. Your investment in this ministry assures that people of all ages and stages of life have opportunity to discover more about a new life in Christ through the study of God's Word. Your partnership in 2022 will provide the resources to sustain and expand the reach of Bible teaching across Canada and beyond. To learn more about the 1119 Monthly Partnership Program, visit backtothebible.ca slash fellowship or call us at one 800 663 2425